I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, May 1st, 2023, the 831st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to this podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to start out with a clip today. Steve Bannon played this clip that has been made into a really powerful video meme by a guy named Max Evans. He goes on Twitter by at Max Evans UMP for Ultra MAGA Party. But the audio he uses is a clip from Paul Harvey describing 
how he would attempt to take over the world if he was the devil. And the original is from back in 1965, and I guess that at some point along the way, it was slightly updated. But regardless, here is Paul Harvey. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies, and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Now, it's easy to see that that is essentially what we have going on right now. It's also easy to see that he was able to predict that 30 years ago when the most updated version of this was written and read. And it's also easy to see that he knew all of this was coming when he first went through it in 1965. So we have 60 years of this same program, at least, by the way, obviously, continuing to work its way through this society. Now, I am sure that at every point along that timeline in the last 60 years, 
that people have heard this clip here and been cognizant of his larger body of work. And he was probably called a conspiracy theorist throughout most of that time, despite being right about all of it. And the strangest thing is that he would still be called a conspiracy theorist right now for saying that, even though almost everyone in our society is aware that all that is happening and they would find excuses for why we should ignore it. They would say, well, you know, he's kind of right here at this one particular point, but he's really over-exaggerating the danger. And none of these things are really connected to one another. You can't ascribe some overriding motive to all of this, the sort of thing that brings it all together and makes it all just one thing. These are all just separate ways that the society is advancing. And these are the ways that people choose to advance. And as more people realize that this is actually the path to the good life for them, society will simply advance to keep up with it. So is that the way the world works? Well, if that's the case, then we are destined to end up in this same place over and over and over again. And to be fair, perhaps we are. Maybe we just go through cycles of slowly going back to sleep after awakening. And over that time, everybody becomes more lax about their morality, about holding people accountable when they do wrong, about holding themselves accountable for doing wrong. And generations pass and all of the motivations toward truth and goodness that we are seeing rise up in our culture right now, they eventually just disappear and the superficial priorities of the scientific materialists take hold once again. The regime is able to use people's own motivations against them to extract power. People want the easy path through life and are more than happy to take it when it's presented to them, giving away more of their power each time. And maybe in some way, all of this is inevitable as a product of human nature. But while we're at this point on the timeline and we can see all of these things happening, we know how destructive they are. And we know that more people are waking up to this reality each and every day. It's kind of our duty to make sure that this gets pushed forward. Until everybody realizes that this is not something that's just happening by our own choices. This is something that is being projected down onto us from the top. Now, I find that clip really powerful and fascinating, but it's also a little dark. And so to start out on Monday, I don't want to put people in a bad mood. So to reroute before we get into much bigger subjects... There is a councilman from Delaware County, Indiana, who has come out as a lesbian woman of Native American heritage. So he is now LGBTQIA+++++. He is a person of color and he is a woman. And he has noted that he is actually the first lesbian woman of color to ever be a councilman in Delaware County, Indiana. And apparently some members of his community are having a little trouble with that. Here's some audio from a public hearing where some whiny cat ladies from the Internet came out of their quarantines 
to let him know that he's not playing by the rules. And for the record, the first person to speak in this video has a very mannish voice, but is decidedly not dressed like a man in the video. Take that however you will. I have absolutely no idea what meaning we could possibly draw off this if what we have is a man in a dress telling another guy that he's not a woman. Hey, maybe this is the moment we've all been waiting for. I remember the comedian Lewis Black. This is an old special, 15, 20 years ago. But he talks about how he found the end of the universe at an intersection in Houston where there was a Starbucks shop across the street from another Starbucks shop. And I think this might be one of those rare instances where you actually can locate the end of the universe. Person Ryan Webb announced publicly on social media that he now, now identifies as a lesbian woman of color. If he were serious, I'd sing his praises. But instead, I know better. In none of my jobs in the last 21 years, and that is many, many jobs, would I have been permitted to mock and disrespect my customers. And if that were true, we would all be proud of you. And no one would be denying your right to do such things and to identify by your heritage. But your open mockery of these communities is insane. In order to demand for the resignation of Ryan Webb, the posts Mr. Webb made on April 12th were offensive on many, on many levels. After hearing these complaints, Ryan Webb responded. I'm being dead serious. You don't get to question me. You do not get to require proof from me. You will probably move it to help establish these rules and set the bar. And naturally, that's exactly how those people should be handled. Just say no, commie, no. So as I suspected last week, we had a big weekend full of news that's all rushing out on a Monday morning. So let's start with the most recent bank collapse. This is from NBC News. First Republic Bank is taken over by FDIC and sold to J.P. Morgan in third major bank failure of the year. We talked a bit about how the bank was having problems last week. Here's the latest. First Republic Bank has been taken over by federal regulators and will be sold to J.P. Morgan, making it the third major bank to go under in less than two months. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced simultaneously Monday morning that it had seized the bank and that J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in America, would be purchasing substantially all of the bank's assets and deposits, making J.P. Morgan Chase even more too big to fail. A spokesperson for the Treasury Department sought to reassure the markets and the public after First Republic with $229.1 billion in total assets at the time of closure eclipsed Silicon Valley Bank, $209 billion at the time of closure, to become the second largest bank failure in American history. The banking system remains sound and resilient. And Americans should feel confident in the safety of their deposits and the ability of the banking system to fulfill its essential function of providing credit to businesses and families, the spokesperson said in a statement. And at some point, you got to start thinking maybe they're not giving us the full story. The banking system does not seem to be remaining sound and resilient at all. And it's kind of funny. How all of Donald Trump's detractors over the years have said that he couldn't even manage casinos well. He couldn't even get a profit from casinos. And the casino business is basically a money dump 
where all you can do is reap profits. Now, they don't know anything about Donald Trump's casino history, so none of that matters. But if you want to apply the same logic that they consistently use, why are they always on the side of these bank owners? Isn't a bank an even more stable version of a casino where it's just an incoming money business? I'm just saying by the same logic, shouldn't it be really difficult to do so poorly with a bank? Reuters reported on why First Republic failed in an article today titled Explainer Why First Republic Bank Failed and What J.P. Morgan's Deal Means. They write, the failure of First Republic, which said last week it had first quarter outflows of more than $100 billion, marks the demise of a third major U.S. bank in just two months after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. First Republic's business model was to lure high net worth customers with preferential rates on mortgages and loans. Its customers have included Instacart founder Apurva Mehta, investor Chamath Palahaptia, and real estate developer Stephen M. Ross, according to bank promotional materials. So catering to extremely high net worth clients in their purchases of extremely expensive real estate. First Republic also catered to other members of the community, according to bank materials, which note that schools and nonprofits account for 22% of its business loans. Schools and nonprofits, that's very impressive. First Republic said in January, its shareholder returns were compounded at 19.5% annually, more than double its peers. It said its median single family home loan borrower had access to cash of $685,000, significantly more than the average American. However, its strategy made it more vulnerable than regional lenders with less affluent customers since U.S. deposit insurance only guarantees $250,000 per savings account. First Republic had a high level of uninsured deposits. So it seems the best way to lose at banking is to do everything absolutely wrong. And while I was digging for information on First Republic, I found this press release from August 2016 where First Republic was lauding its new home loan program focusing on mortgages to minority and low and moderate income borrowers. And of course, all of that was for social justice. But back to the NBC article, because there's a really interesting quote from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, down at the bottom. He said, our government invited us and others to step up, and we did. Our financial strength, capabilities, and business model allowed us to develop a bid to execute the transaction in a way to minimize costs to the deposit insurance fund. So the government invited them in because the government couldn't cover the deposits. The FDIC can't possibly cover all those deposits. They will claim all that which puts it on the American taxpayer. And then JP Morgan Chase swoops in because you got to protect the taxpayer, right? That's all they care about doing is protecting the taxpayer. And JP Morgan is now much bigger and obviously far too big to fail. So the dollar is collapsing worldwide. Banks are collapsing in America and around the world. 
And whenever there is a problem, the best way to solve it is by doing something the regime already wanted to do, which was consolidate wealth and power. And now that's exactly what we're getting. Now, last week, we discussed some of the problems at the border and the testimony from the whistleblower in Congress who claimed that we do indeed have a slave trade going on at the southern border. It is a massive international human trafficking operation where NGOs around the world find areas impoverished by the global regime around the world, and then they recruit impoverished residents of these areas to go to the U.S. for a whole new start. And the NGOs involved with U.N. migration ship all of these people overseas south of the border where they are handed off to the drug cartels for their journey to the southern border. People are kidnapped. They're forced to be drug mules. They're raped. They're assaulted. They're murdered. And some finally make it to the border. With the cartels, the cartels bring them across the border where they are handed off to NGOs based in America who distribute them all around the country into the jobs that they will do, which constitute indentured servitude. They have to pay off the cartels working long hours for low wages, just as slaves do throughout the world. And the whistleblower last week was describing situations even worse than that. She described 85,000 missing children who are totally unaccounted for. The NGOs find them sponsors. The sponsors are not vetted. Those sponsors take a bunch of migrant children, and many of them are forced into illicit activities such as prostitution. And this includes children. That's the human trafficking operation in a nutshell. We also talked last week about the fentanyl factor and the deal that Xi Jinping and Donald Trump had struck if Donald Trump was in office for his second term. She had promised Trump that he would root out the fentanyl trade, the beginnings of it in China, and the people involved would be prosecuted and, if found guilty, executed. We have this from Saturday in the Daily Mail, how China is helping Mexico's cartels. Criminals with links to the Communist Party are laundering millions in drug money for gangsters, including El Chapo's Sinaloa clan, as they flood the U.S. with killer fentanyl. It is a match made in hell. Chinese triad gangs have teamed up with brutal Mexican cartels to help them launder millions in illicit drug money made by flooding the U.S. with the killer drug fentanyl. For at least the last seven years, Mexican mobsters, including from El Chapo's notorious Sinaloa cartel, have been paying Chinese middlemen to clean money made selling drugs on America's streets in a complex scheme involving members of Beijing's elite. Now, American lawmakers have called for an investigation into whether the Chinese Communist Party is complicit in the scheme amid warnings Xi Jinping is using America's opioid crisis as yet another weapon in his quest to establish a new world order. You see, it's no problem talking about the new world order when the Daily Mail says it and when it's China doing it. Now, we always have to remember there are two things everywhere. There are factions everywhere in organizations, in countries, and in the world. There are factions supporting the regime and its agenda in the march toward global communism. And there are factions who represent sovereign nations and sovereign individuals. And it's critically important that we determine which faction is doing what. 
is poisoning Americans in service of a new world order, Xi Jinping's plan? Well, hey, I don't know what's in Xi's head. Maybe it could be, but it's certainly the global regime's plan. And we've seen it on all levels. They have formalized their plan of drugging Americans into numbness and early death in order to take the power and resources of the country. We know the regime's intimate relationship with the pharmaceutical companies. We saw what they did with the vaccine mandates. So there's obviously nothing good about the fentanyl problem or China's role in it. But to think that this is not in line with exactly what the global regime wants and to shift that blame off onto China alone is crazy. No matter how much weight China is exerting on politicians in America, it is still politicians in America that have left our borders open and that ignore this problem because they don't want to take responsibility for it. You don't have to deny anything about the role of the Chinese Communist Party in this to understand that that point is true. And you also don't have to make any excuses for the Chinese Communist Party to note that there is a larger agenda at play here and that it's not one started by the Chinese Communist Party. The State Department estimates that $154 billion in illicit funds pass through China each and every year. It is imperative that Congress work to understand the extent of the Chinese Communist Party's complicity in these money laundering schemes. And that is a quote from Lisa McLean, the chairwoman of the Subcommittee on Healthcare and Financial Services. The Daily Mail article goes on to describe changes in the Chinese and cartel relationship in the fentanyl trade over the last few years. But I'm going to skip down more toward the end. Vonda Felbob Brown, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who studies illicit economies, gave a similar verdict when speaking on Capitol Hill last month at a session entitled The CCP's Business Model Fueling the Fentanyl Crisis. Now, the Brookings Institution is as globalist as it gets. It's important to never forget that the globalist regime has always been the key driving factor in the growth and empowerment of the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese officials have long become accustomed to unofficially extending the umbrella of party protection and government authority to actors who operate in both legal and illegal enterprises, as well as to outright criminal groups, she said. You could also describe American officials in the exact same way. They have long become accustomed to unofficially extending the umbrella of party protection and government authority to actors who operate in both legal and illegal enterprises, as well as to outright criminal groups. That is an indisputable fact about American officials. In return, the triads provide a variety of services to Chinese legal business enterprises, including those connected to government officials in the CCP. Again, same thing here. She added, this includes the promotion and facilitation of Chinese businesses abroad, the building up of networks of political influence for China abroad, and informal information gathering. Furthermore, she explained that China sees the trade in drugs and illegal money as a tool that can be used in competition with the U.S. As that competition has heated up in recent years, Beijing's efforts to stem the flow of drugs and money have slackened. In August of last year, in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, they stopped completely. So Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and 
China stopped their efforts to stem the flow of drugs and money. That's what the Daily Mail article is claiming. And here's the real WTF part of this article. While nobody has yet been able to prove a link between the CCP and money laundering operations, moves by Beijing to politicize the issue have set alarm bells ringing and sparked calls for further investigations. China denies any such links and claims to have no role in America's opioid crisis, calling the problem 100% made in America. Mao Ning, a Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman, said this month, there is no such thing as illegal trafficking of fentanyl between China and Mexico. We two countries have a smooth channel of counter-narcotics cooperation, and the competent authorities of the two countries maintain sound communication. China has not been notified by Mexico on the seizure of scheduled fentanyl precursors from China. The Chinese government takes a firm stance on counter-narcotics. So we'll continue to keep an eye on this and see exactly where this goes. Is it possible that the Chinese role in all of this has been massively overstated? Yeah, that's possible. Again, you can be 100% anti-CCP and still understand that our mass media is trying to push us to blame and hate China for things that the CCP has done. The CCP, in many ways, is just the uniparty in America. It's the representation of the global regime within the country. And you can't blame the entire country for what the global regime is doing there, except to the extent that the people of that country are supporting the global regime. Most of the people doing that in any given country are doing so on some level unknowingly. They just want to go back to their normal lives. They want to keep making money and profiting, doing the things that they're doing. They don't think about long-term consequences. They don't see a bigger picture at play here at all. And they're inclined to support whatever they're told to support and whatever they believe will keep their life flowing freely and easily. Now, that's very ignorant, and there is certainly a moral element to that. But it's not like the majority of China supports killing American citizens with fentanyl overdoses in the same way that the majority of American citizens don't support U.S. Department of Defense funded bioweapons labs in countries all across the world. We can strongly oppose the global regime in China as represented by the CCP, the same way we can strongly oppose the global regime in America as represented by the Uniparty. We can strongly oppose the global regime as represented in Ukraine without hating Ukrainians. This is why it's always important to focus on the faction in power doing the thing in each country rather than just saying Russia did this, China did this, France did this, because that's intentionally obscuring a level of sophistication that we all have access to and understanding of in favor of simply talking about things the way we've always talked about them. The United States is not one thing. China's not one thing. Ukraine's not one thing. Brazil's not one thing. You can just keep going on and on and on. Donald Trump may have held the title of president of the Uniparty in America. That does not make him of the Uniparty. And we have to understand that dynamic at play when it comes to other world leaders. Now, the regime seems to be getting some bad news in Paraguay as well. 
This is from the National File today. Frankie Stocks. Paraguay has triumphed. Jesus has triumphed. Paraguayan patriots defeat the World Economic Forum and CIA election coup. Paraguayan patriots have defeated the WEF and CIA-backed election coup that saw Klaus Schwab, his World Economic Forum, the U.S. deep state, and hackers linked to Brazil's left-wing government meddling in the nation's politics with the aim of installing a Manchurian candidate to ignite, quote, the fourth industrial revolution and great reset agendas in Latin America. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's worth noting that last year, CIA head William Burns involved himself multiple times in the Brazilian election last year. He even traveled to Brazil to tell Jair Bolsonaro not to meddle in the election outcome. And we certainly spent plenty of time on the Brazilian elections and the obvious machine-based fraud in their elections on the podcast last fall. Paraguay's center right to right-wing Colorado party won the presidency in both chambers of the national legislature, dealing a major blow to the great reset agenda of Klaus Schwab and his CIA allies, who were backing the globalist ticket of the left-wing, authentic, radical, liberal party. The victories also deal a major blow to the establishment figures within the Colorado party, who, much like establishment Republicans in the United States, have been blatantly captured by the WEF and their Sorosian allies. With more than 99% of the vote reported, Colorado Party presidential candidate Santiago Peña has won the support of more than 1.2 million Paraguayans, giving him a 42% plurality of votes. Efrain Alegre, the WEF's man, won just 830,842 votes, equating to 27.49% of those cast. Even left-wing Paraguayans rejected selling the nation out to globalism, supporting the populist dark horse style campaign of Paraguayo Cubas. Instead of backing Alegre and the PLRA, which sought to pivot the nation toward communist China, Paraguay is one of the few nations on earth that recognizes Taiwanese sovereignty, something the PLRA and their WEF backers vowed to put a stop to had they been successful in installing themselves in government leadership. Paraguay has triumphed. Jesus has triumphed, wrote Paraguayan patriot Jose Ocampos in a post he made to Twitter, summing up his nation's election Sunday. The sovereign has spoken. The discussion is over, Ocampos said, with the discussion being globalist efforts to pull Paraguay into the World Economic Forum's fold, something that Klaus Schwab has called critical for the realization of the fourth industrial revolution in Latin America and around the world. Also worth noting, just like Lula da Silva in Brazil, the Paraguayan opposition leader Efrain Alegre spent three weeks behind bars a couple years ago for what he says were trumped up corruption charges related to campaign financing. And it's also worth noting that in 2018, Paraguay was dealing with claims of election fraud. And so we'll see how this develops, but it looks like the regime is being kicked out of another country. Hunter Biden is having himself a big day. He is in court in Arkansas as they attempt to settle out issues on paternity and child support for 
a baby he had with a woman named London Roberts. This is Miranda Devine today in the New York Post. Hunter Biden may be held accountable for the first time in his life in baby mama London Roberts case. Hunter Biden's showdown with baby mama London Roberts in a Batesville, Arkansas courtroom Monday may be the first time in his life that he hasn't been able to wheedle out of the consequences of his actions. The president's son is crying poor and seeking to cut child support payments to Navy Joan, his unacknowledged four-year-old daughter with Roberts, a former stripper with whom he had a months-long affair. It appears Hunter's lawyers will not come to a settlement with Roberts to avoid his opening the kimono on his financial secrets. Already, we have found that the first son offloaded his 10% stake in Chinese equity firm BHR to his quote-unquote sugar brother, Kevin Morris, the Hollywood attorney who paid $2.8 million to cover Hunter's IRS debt. New documents uncovered by nonprofit Marco Polo and published over the weekend by Breitbart News show that Hunter's firm Scaniatalis LLC, which held the BHR stake, is controlled by Morris. And Scaniatalis is named after the Finger Lakes region of Western New York. And you might know that Hunter Biden has the Finger Lakes tattooed to his back. No doubt Robert's attorneys will want to know just how much Hunter received for the BHR stake, which has been estimated to be worth between $420,000 and $20 million, but which he told the New York Times he sold at a loss. Hunter received his cut in the CCP-backed fund in December 2013, a few days after flying to Beijing on Air Force Two with his dad, then Vice President Joe Biden, who met with Hunter's Chinese partner during the trip. By 2019, BHR had $2.5 billion in funds under management, but struggled with poor investments. Hunter's abandoned laptop and the financial records it contains are expected to take center stage in the case. Hunter's attorney, Brent Langdon, could not answer when Independence County, Arkansas Circuit Judge Holly Meyer asked, is it your client's laptop or not? I am not in a position to even begin to answer that question, Langdon replied. It's unlikely the judge will allow this evasiveness to continue. Whatever the result, in the end, little Navy, the president's unmentioned seventh grandchild, can be proud to know when she grows up that she has a mother gutsy enough to stand up for her against the White House and the best lawyers money can buy. And that's not the only Hunter Biden news. There is a piece in The Federalist today by Margot Cleveland. Huge development means IRS whistleblower can soon explode Biden family details. And we discussed a bit of this last week. The House Ways and Means Committee granted two attorneys representing the IRS whistleblower authority to inspect Hunter Biden's tax records and related information. This development promises to accelerate the unraveling of the Justice Department's Biden family protection racket. Understanding why requires a fuller understanding of IRS privacy law, so here's your law splainer. Section 6103 of the Internal Revenue Code provides that federal tax returns and return information shall be confidential, and it makes it illegal for an IRS officer or employee to disclose such tax information. In fact, many view Section 6103's confidentiality mandate as even precluding a government employee 
from revealing the existence of an investigation into a taxpayer. However, because in December of 2020, Hunter Biden publicly acknowledged the existence of an investigation into his tax matters after federal prosecutors subpoenaed his business records, the public has long known of the investigation into the president's son. Several exceptions to the confidentiality provisions of Section 6103 exist, though. Relevant here is the statutory exception authorizing whistleblowers to disclose confidential information to the House Committee on Ways and Means or the Senate Committee on Finance. That exception guarantees whistleblower protection to government agents who reveal confidential information concerning tax issues to either of those committees. But because the Section 6103 exception does not also allow a whistleblower the right to disclose the information to his attorney, the whistleblower would be forced to face the committees without the benefit of legal counsel. Further, because Section 6103 defines return information broadly to include the nature and sources of income, data collected by the IRS, and any background filed document or written determination prepared by the IRS, the whistleblower also could not legally discuss with his attorney many aspects of an investigation to prepare to testify before the congressional committees. This backdrop explains the purpose of the letter Mark Lytle, one of the lawyers representing the IRS whistleblower sent to the chairs and ranking members of several congressional committees. In that letter, Lytle conveyed his client's offer to share information, establishing that politics improperly infected the criminal investigation of a high-profile controversial subject again widely believed to be Hunter Biden because of the Biden son's confirmation in 2020 of an ongoing federal investigation into his tax matters. The letter stressed that because of tax privacy laws, the IRS whistleblower, out of an abundance of caution, had refrained from sharing certain information with Lytle while seeking his legal advice. Lytle then explained that lacking a full understanding of the situation made it challenging for him to make fully informed judgments on how best to proceed. Lytle closed his letter by asking the committees to work with him so his client could share the information with Congress legally and with the fully informed advice of counsel, adding, with the appropriate legal protections and in the appropriate setting, I would be happy to meet with you and provide a more detailed proffer of the testimony my client could provide to Congress. And so the workaround for this is that the congressional committees have made it possible to designate the whistleblower's attorney as the whistleblower's agent. This allows the whistleblower to confer with attorneys and then have those attorneys transmit the substance of the whistleblower's statements to Congress. She writes that last week, the Ways and Means Committee authorized two of the whistleblower's attorneys to inspect the tax material. It sidesteps a protracted battle over the circumstances under which the whistleblower would testify. It also ensures the House Committee can learn on an expedited basis the whistleblower's accusations. Now, it's important that this was able to happen because it seems that the whistleblower's claims reach far beyond the tax case against Hunter Biden. And Margot Cleveland ends the article this way. Specifically, Lytle's letter states that the whistleblower has detailed, quote, 
examples of preferential treatment and politics improperly infecting decisions and protocols that would normally be followed by career law enforcement professionals in similar circumstances if the subject were not politically connected. People directly familiar with the case provided more texture to this accusation, stating that, quote, Specific DOJ employees placed strictures on questions, witnesses, and tactics investigators may be allowed to pursue that could impact President Biden. The unnamed sources also stressed the improper politicization of the case came from the Justice Department and FBI headquarters. The whistleblower's accusations thus extend far beyond the tax case against Hunter Biden. Although unraveling the scandal will start there, it won't end there. With the whistleblower's attorneys now able to coordinate directly with the House Ways and Means Committee, the time frame for exposing those complicit in covering for the Bidens just shrunk substantially. So the walls are closing in on Joe Biden, just as the walls are always closing in again later on Donald Trump. But the thing is, all of the Donald Trump cases are provably nonsense, while Hunter Biden has an entire laptop full of evidence implicating him, other family members, and the fake president of far-reaching schemes of political corruption and compromise that span decades and work to benefit our foreign adversaries and the global regime at the expense of the interests of Joe Biden's constituents and the American people. As I mentioned last week, all of this comes at the moment where Joe Biden announces his candidacy for president next year in a pre-recorded video that virtually no one even bothered watching. And then over the weekend, you have Delaware Senator Chris Coons on the Sunday shows talking about how Joe Biden is just as spry as ever. And if anything happens to Joe, well, we have Kamala and she is ready to step in at a moment's notice. It's actually the media who hasn't been doing Kamala Harris, the proper justice in telling the country and the world how great Kamala Harris is as vice president. He actually said that he traveled with her a couple weeks ago. And my, my, she is just a wonder to watch on the world stage. She just has this easy way about her when she's speaking and everybody just loves her. Apparently, the cackle is a much bigger hit in person than it seems to be online. Now, to an unrelated subject, Miranda Devine also had a piece yesterday in the New York Post with the headline, Texas AG Ken Paxton's COVID-19 investigation could stick it to big pharma execs. She writes, it's sickening how much big pharma bosses have profited from the COVID-19 pandemic after overselling billions of people around the world on the wondrous qualities of their vaccines. Moderna chief executive Stefan Bansell made nearly $400 million last year on his stock options and still owns a reported $2.8 billion of shares in the company, plus his salary and perks. His Pfizer counterpart, Albert Bourla, pocketed a $33 million salary last year on top of the millions in Pfizer shares he sold. But before they ride off into the sunset to count their filthy lucre, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton plans to investigate whether their companies misrepresented the efficacy and safety of the vaccines and manipulated vaccine trial data. 
On Monday, Paxton will launch an investigation into potential violations of his state's Deceptive Trade Practices Act by Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. He is revealed exclusively in the post. He also wants to know whether the pharmaceutical giants engaged in gain of function research and misled the public about it. The Texas investigation could have widespread implications for the legal immunity granted to manufacturers of the COVID-19 vaccines and open the door to class action lawsuits from people injured by the mRNA jabs amid reports of rare but serious adverse effects. And I don't know where Miranda Devine is getting the words rare but serious effects. This is just mainstream media nonsense. The effects are not rare by any common standard of vaccines. That is just a slogan that encourages people to believe that because so many vaccine doses were distributed to so many people that the instances of serious negative side effects, and in fact, negative side effects at all, are just so rare that they're hardly worth looking at. The catastrophic effects of the pandemic and subsequent interventions forced on our country and citizens deserve intense scrutiny, and we are pursuing any hint of wrongdoing to the fullest, Paxton said in a statement. This pandemic was a deeply challenging time for Americans. If any company illegally took advantage of consumers during this period or compromised people's safety to increase their profits, they will be held responsible. If public health policy was developed on the basis of flawed or misleading research, the public must know. He says Big Pharma had a vested interest in the success of its COVID-19 vaccines because of the record profits they drove. This vested interest, combined with reports about the alarming side effects of vaccines, demands aggressive investigation, Paxton said. The existence of federal vaccine mandates, quote, means this investigation into the scientific and ethical basis on which public health decisions were made is of major significance, end quote. That, of course, is Paxton. Paxton will demand the company's handover documents relating to, quote, the decision making behind pandemic interventions forced on the public, especially when a profit motive or political pressure may have compromised Americans' health and safety, end quote. Now, Ken Paxton is one of the best AGs in the country, if not the best. He seems to me like an absolute straight shooter. I do not have any good reason I have come across to doubt that Ken Paxton is on the right side of things. So it makes me very happy to see that he is pursuing this issue. Ken Paxton, you might remember, led the coalition of 19 states to file with the Supreme Court over Joe Biden's fraudulent election. And the Texas courts made it impossible for Ken Paxton to pursue allegations of election fraud. The regime also tried to replace Paxton last year with George Prescott Bush. And I always find it a little odd that the Bush family chooses to honor the name of Prescott Bush because that guy was downright evil. So Ken Paxton has certainly had a bunch of stuff thrown at him to try to steer him off course. It doesn't seem like he's gone off course at all. And it's wonderful that he's going after the pharma companies for their role in this vaccine disaster. And I hope he is able to puncture their immunity for all of this because they must be held responsible. 
Switching topics without a segue. I know the Ron DeSantis discussions have become a little tedious and divisive. I know that DeSantis supporters and supporters of the Republican Party and the Republican establishment wish that Donald Trump would not go after Ron DeSantis at all. But that option doesn't really exist for Donald Trump. And it's a little ridiculous to assume that Donald Trump is not allowed to engage in political hardball while his opponents are doing exactly that. A coalition of the Bushes, Paul Ryan, Carl Rove, and others have led this effort to push Ron DeSantis into running for president. DeSantis himself has said very little about it, but he has been on tour first for his book and then on a foreign escapade to convince people, apparently, that he is prepared to be president. Now, none of that has worked. There's also been a social media effort online that has spanned the last six months completely directed toward promoting Ron DeSantis and at the same time discrediting Donald Trump and all of his supporters. And the people selected by Team DeSantis or Team Draft DeSantis, if it's not Ron's own doing, have made a series of terrible and mostly pointless arguments about how Ron DeSantis is actually marginally better than Donald Trump on a range of issues that are nowhere close to the most important issues. Those issues having to do with directly confronting and dismantling the global regime as it exists in the United States of America. We are told that Ron DeSantis will be slightly better on wokeness. He was slightly better than Trump on COVID, and he would be slightly better at this or that than Donald Trump ever could be. That's essentially what they're telling us, and they are bringing their facts that they believe they have in support of all these points, not understanding that even if they were to prove all of these points and be right that Ron DeSantis was marginally better at this or that, it still wouldn't mean that Ron DeSantis is the best candidate to be the Republican nominee for president and eventually president. And because virtually everyone realizes this, they then shift to talking about how Ron DeSantis is the only one that can win in the rigged system where the regime decides who wins. So Ron DeSantis would be the choice of the regime and the guy that the regime is absolutely opposed to and has been now for nearly eight years should be ignored in favor of a guy that seems to have, at least, the regime's support. These people have not bothered to find out what Trump supporters actually believe and why they support Donald Trump the way they do. And so they make a bunch of nonsense arguments that are expected to appeal to people who don't pay that much attention or to who watch Fox News all day. People have liked Ron DeSantis. They have a good feeling about Ron DeSantis. They like the way that he takes on the media. And all those things are nice. I'm not disputing any of those things. Ron DeSantis may someday be a decent candidate to hold national office. But in the six months that this has been going on, Ron DeSantis has done nothing to tamp it down, nothing to make it less divisive, and he's done really nothing at all. And again, I want to make clear that if there is something else going on behind the scenes, and this is just an info op to figure out who it is who's anti-Trump and exactly 
which weighs their anti-Trump in terms of the Republican establishment, the uniparty right, I'm all for it. And I would be potentially happy to back DeSantis when all of this is over, if that's what it turns out to be. But we also have to just analyze the situation as it exists and as we're being told it to the extent that that might be some version of true. Politico covered Ron DeSantis's overseas venture on Saturday in an article with the headline, Ron DeTedious, DeSantis underwhelms Britain's business chiefs. He hopes to win the hearts and minds of devoted Donald Trump supporters ahead of next year's U.S. election. But Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis failed to impress British business chiefs at a high profile London event Friday in a tired performance described variously as horrendous, low wattage and like the end of an overseas trip. The Florida governor expected to launch his bid next month to challenge Trump as the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential race met with more than 50 representatives of major UK firms and business lobbying groups as part of a four country trade mission ending in London Friday. His trip was officially billed as an attempt to build Florida's economic relationships with the UK, Israel, South Korea and Japan but it has been widely seen in Washington as a chance for DeSantis to present himself as a statesman on the world stage. For several of those present, however, the statesmanship was lacking. One UK business figure said DeSantis looked bored and stared at his feet as he met with titans of British industry in an event co-hosted by Lloyd's of London, the world's largest insurance marketplace. He had been to five different countries in five days, and he definitely looked spent, but his message wasn't presidential, they told Politico. He was horrendous. A second business figure who was in the room said it was a low wattage performance and that nobody in the room was left thinking this man's going places. They said, quote, it felt really a bit like we were watching a state level politician. I wouldn't be surprised if people in attendance came out thinking that's not the guy. There wasn't any stardust. And the article goes on. Now, to be as fair as possible to Ron DeSantis, this is Politico saying all of this. They could have selected certain quotes from the crowd to make DeSantis look bad. They could be covering Ron DeSantis in the same way they covered Donald Trump, trying to make him look bad at every opportunity. If they are doing that, we are being told by the DeSantis simps that the reason that's happening is because they are scared of the Ron DeSantis presidency, that the regime is scared of Ron DeSantis more than they're scared of Donald Trump. And of course, we're being told that that is even plausible because DeSantis would be the one most likely to win again in a rigged system. And all of the people in the obviously paid and organized DeSantis simp info op on Twitter and elsewhere deny that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And of course they have to, because if they accept that the election was stolen, if they admit that and they still want to replace Donald Trump with someone else, then they are accepting that the regime is allowed to choose who leads the United States of America. They immediately cast themselves as supporters of the regime. So they're trying to walk a very thin line and they're doing an absolutely terrible job of doing it. It's also possible that 
all of the business leaders he met with are themselves part of the global regime, and they didn't hear anything from Ron DeSantis that made them feel like they should be safe and secure in their positions. And so if this entire Ron DeSantis thing is not about Ron DeSantis being part of the regime and is instead Ron DeSantis taking one publicly on the chin for a few months to expose the rest of conservative incorporated and the GOP establishment, then you can imagine why those business leaders would have been so upset with DeSantis, which then would make it seem like Politico is just running cover for the regime and letting everyone know that it doesn't seem like Ron DeSantis is down with the program. And again, I want to make it clear that none of us are rooting against Ron DeSantis, except within the scope of these anti-Trump arguments. I would love to see Ron DeSantis make the right decision, choose not to run, endorse Donald Trump, and we can all just move forward together. Of course, without all of these people who have been attempting to draft Ron DeSantis by making the anti-Trump argument for the last six months, none of those people are going to make it. They can go join the Lincoln Project or they can grovel. I don't expect them to grovel. But we should view Ron DeSantis as a separate entity from the people pushing him to run for president and making the anti-Trump case for his running. And I've said for weeks now that we are going to get a really clear picture of where Ron DeSantis stands when it comes to the passage of this bill that will eradicate Florida's standard saying that a governor must resign from his position to run for president. DeSantis was just reelected the governor of Florida six months ago. He has absolutely no business abandoning his job in order to run against Trump on behalf of the regime. That is not good for the people of Florida. That means Ron DeSantis is not focused on his job as Florida governor. If he goes out and hits the national stage and destroys his political career, which is bound to happen. Ron DeSantis taking on Donald Trump only has one outcome. Ron DeSantis loses and his political career is over. I don't know why people don't understand that. This isn't a matter of rah-rah Donald Trump. The effort has evolved over the last six months online. It has been a spectacular and embarrassing failure, and it has made Ron DeSantis look bad across the board. If he actually goes through with this and runs, then the game is really on. This has all just been preseason, these games that have been played so far. None of it's real until Ron runs. So last week, Florida Republicans passed this bill that allows Ron DeSantis to run for president without resigning from the Florida governorship. And it also makes some other changes to how elections are governed in Florida. All of the provisions of this bill make it seem like Florida is leading the pack on election integrity, but none of them actively take us where we need to be to ensure fair and free, safe and secure elections with reliable results that reflect the will of the people. NBC6 in South Florida posted an article about the changes in the bill. Last week, the headline Florida Senate passes wide-ranging changes in elections laws. Here's who could be impacted. 
and they go through some of the changes for third party voter registration organizations. These are organizations like Rock the Vote and others who in many states have direct access to the state voter registries and especially in states with very lax standards on registering to vote and states with same day voter registration. These third party organizations are able to inflate the number of voter registries so that the fraud system can then take advantage of this new surplus of registrations. So in Florida, under the bill, third party voter registration organizations would be required to inform the division of elections as to the general cycle for which they are registering persons to vote. The groups currently have to register with the state, but under the proposal, they would have to re-register after every general election. Okay, that sounds fine. The bill would also require the groups to provide receipts to people filling out voter registration applications. That sounds fine. The measure would shorten a time frame from 14 days to 10 days for the groups to deliver voter registration applications to election officials. Sounds fine. In addition, the bill could lead to third degree felony charges if people collect voter registration applications for the groups and keep personal information about voters. Now, that's probably going to affect a bunch of these third party organizations, because ultimately all of these are data organizations that are designed to help map out voter behavior and know what they need. And there are increases to fines, etc. What this doesn't address is the fact that there should not be third-party voter registration organizations. I know that we've all just come to accept that those exist. Oh, we're having a voter registration drive. Let's just not do that. Let's have a voter registration office or a place where people can go register to vote or register through the mail with proper identification directly with the state. We don't need third-party outside groups handling voter registrations. So the correct way to have handled this would have been to get rid of them. Instead, we see what we often see, which is small adjustments being made to convince the public that something has been done to fix the problem, but the problem is allowed to persist. The legislation would also make it unlawful for any person to intimidate, threaten, coerce, harass, or attempt to intimidate, threaten, coerce, or harass an election worker with the intent to impede or interfere with the performance of the election workers official duties or with the intent to retaliate against such election worker for the performance of official duties. Violations would be considered a third degree felony. So what is the standard of harassment for an election worker? Are you allowed to ask an election worker why they're doing their job improperly, for instance, or is this an attempt to go after or coerce behavior of people who are involved in elections and trying to keep those elections transparent and reliable for the general public. We saw a lot of these problems in 2020. Election workers would not need to be a protected class if so many of them weren't involved in a systematic defrauding of the entire American population when it comes to our elections. The measure would also require the Secretary of State to provide mandatory formal signature matching training to supervisors of elections and county canvassing board members or any person whose duties require 
verification of signatures. So they need special training for the signature matchers, which means that signature matching is now a broadened role that requires the people doing the signature matching to spend more time out of their lives doing exactly this. Now, we've discussed in other places that one of the from the top down goals on how to control elections is to remove the citizenry from the process and have special task forces and groups and agencies from the centralized government running the elections. That's why they want fewer local precincts and fewer watchers. They'll tell us that it's actually better this way because now these people have all this training. Well, it doesn't matter how much training you have if your signature matching process is the way it's done in Arizona, where it's done mostly by a machine. And then somebody says, yeah, the machine was right every eight seconds around the clock for days on end in order to actually match all the signatures, which they definitely didn't do in Arizona. So again, another provision that sounds like it helps, but doesn't help and just encourages confidence in a broken system. The authority of election crimes and security. You'll remember that Ron DeSantis started up a new state agency to handle election crimes. Again, a state agency is not what's needed. Transparency with the people of the state and of the country is what's needed. The bill authorizes the Office of Election Crimes and Security to review complaints and conduct preliminary investigations related to any alleged election irregularity involving the Florida election code. Again, I think the entire agency and the idea of this agency is a joke. And this has been the main and really sole contribution of Ron DeSantis to the election integrity effort since 2020, which does not speak well of DeSantis and has not spoken well of DeSantis for two and a half years. I have mentioned this countless times. Another section of the bill concerns voter information cards. It says the cards, which must be furnished by the supervisor to all registered voters residing in the supervisor's county, have to include new language. This card is for information purposes only. This card is proof of registration, but is not legal verification of the eligibility to vote. The new section reads, it is the responsibility of a voter to keep his or her eligibility status current. And of course, quotes from Democrats about how this is making it harder for people to vote. And then finally, of course, they have the resign to run provision taken down, which would allow Ron DeSantis to run. Now, the question is, will Ron DeSantis sign this bill? This is a major decision and a turning point in Ron DeSantis's political career. If he signs this bill, he is saying that he is willing to change Florida law in order to prevent Donald Trump from being the Republican nominee next year. That is substantively no different than what Alvin Bragg is doing in New York by changing, inventing a novel legal theory so that he can prevent Donald Trump from being president in 2024. The Florida legislature should have never allowed this. And every Republican who voted for this down in Florida should be looked at with great suspicion until they prove otherwise. This is a pro-regime measure. They're not fixing elections here. 
This does not make our elections one day handmarked paper ballots, voter ID in small precincts, hand counted and fully transparent to the public. It doesn't do any of those things. It tells us the system is being fixed while leaving the system in place. And it changes the law to allow Ron DeSantis to stop doing his job in Florida and instead do the job of attempting to take out Donald Trump. Will Ron DeSantis make himself the Alvin Bragg of Florida? Now, Donald Trump responded to all of this over the weekend and said, I couldn't care less if Ron DeSantis runs, but the problem is the bill he is about to sign, which allows him to run without resigning from being governor, totally weakens election integrity in Florida. Instead of getting tough and doing what the people want, same-day voting, voter ID, proof of citizenship, paper ballots, hand count, etc., this bill guts everything. It will allow dirty voter rolls to get dirtier, weakens transparency, and is a total mess. It's simple. All we want is a free and fair election and an honest count. So if DeSantis is a good guy, then Trump is calling out the Florida legislature for something that does not serve the people of Florida in any way whatsoever. And that's ultimately the most important thing here. People can want Ron DeSantis to run for president. If they wanted him to do that, he shouldn't have run for governor last year. But if that's all this bill is, then this is pure political pragmatism that has absolutely nothing to do with the good of the people of Florida. And it's the job of the Florida legislature and Ron DeSantis to be working for the good of the people of Florida. I haven't heard a single principled argument in favor of the passage of this bill. We can't simply buy that this bill is good for election integrity it isn't. It might not be bad for it. It might just be neutral, but it's certainly not good. This is not fixing the elections in Florida. And if there's no principled argument for why it's good for the people of Florida, then we only can see this as pure political pragmatism, the regime wanting to prop up someone they believe has the best chance of beating Donald Trump and knocking Donald Trump out of the race. So then it becomes clear that the Florida legislature is doing the work of the regime by passing this bill. But will Ron sign it? Now, if this was all an op and Ron DeSantis is actually a good guy and this has all been coordinated and that's why Ron DeSantis has tried to keep his hands relatively clean while the Republican establishment pushes this whole op to get him to run, then pushing it to this point has smoked out probably the entirety of the GOP elite establishment in Florida and who is willing to do their bidding. All of that would be a massive win. All Ron DeSantis has to do is veto this legislation and endorse Donald Trump, and he will get back most, if not all, of the support he has lost in the last six months from MAGA and other patriotic Americans who don't think that it is a bold patriotic move and a mark of leadership for Ron DeSantis to help the regime take down the man the regime stole the election from and who is right now the duly elected president. Donald Trump won in 2020. That election was stolen. Any acceptance of stolen elections and the attempt to replace 
the person the election was stolen from is the opposite of patriotic. And I'm totally open to Ron DeSantis being a good guy, but now the time has come for him to prove it. If he signs this bill and runs for president, the gloves are off. And then we get into the actual campaign. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that the regular season games are going to go any differently than the preseason games have. And for the record, it's not like I enjoy this. I would rather Ron DeSantis just be obviously a patriotic America first Republican with a great political future rather than being a tool of the regime sent to attempt to create Trumpism without Donald Trump, to replace Donald Trump with Donald Trump light in the mind of the public. I would love to be pro Ron, but Ron's got to do the right thing. And if he doesn't do the right thing, then that's that. It doesn't matter how much we liked him on TV a year ago. It doesn't matter that he says funny things like tossing Fauci in the Potomac. That would be great. That would be hilarious. I would pay to watch Ron DeSantis do that himself. But it's not like he's our friend. The decisions he makes on crucial issues are far more important than his ability to make fun of figures in the media and talk about woke stuff. Those things are nice, but they're not the real thing. The real thing is making sure that American elections are legitimate and that we have leaders in place who are willing and able to take on the regime. That's all that matters. And Ron is about to let us know who he really is. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, and bit shoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!